0: Good day, my friends. This is Under Review, the tennis podcast from an insider's perspective. I'm Craig Shapiro, and on the show, I talk with the most interesting voices in the sport. We've got a great show for you today. We promised you Jim Courier, and we will deliver Jim Courier. But next week, because this week we thought we'd pull up This amazing episode we've been sitting on. With all the coaching, hirings, and firings, and splittings in women's tennis lately, we thought this would be a good time to hear from one of the most successful women's coaches of all time. He coached Anna Ivanovic, Yelena Dokic, and Jennifer Capriati. But he most significantly spent seven years with Steffi Graf and together they won 12 major titles. He also had an impressive playing career. He beat Venus Garolitis, Guillermo Vilas, Yvonne Lendl and many more. He's a member of the illustrious Final Eight Club at Wimbledon, Roland Garros and the US Open. He's now a broadcaster for Swiss TV, which he lovingly refers to as Roger Federer TV. Switzerland's first professional athlete Heinz Gunthardt, going to tell us what it's like to cover Australian tennis in a ski parka, how improving a slice backhand can mean the difference between being good or being the best to ever play, and how a well-paced tying of the shoes can lead to a powerhouse tennis love connection. We met up with Heinz at the ATP finals back in November. We are in interview room two in the basement of the O2 Arena. We're here with Heinz Gunthart, um, who's here with Swiss Television. Uh, my man, it's great to see you. Um, thank you for being with us. A pleasure to be here. You know, um, I'm 46. My father loved tennis, so we would always, you know, we would go to the US Open every year, and, and we would go to the tournament in Philadelphia and a lot of different tournaments. and. You know, Heinz Günther. that's a name that you would see in each and every draw, deep into the draws, um, a lot of double success as well, is that right?
1: Yeah, I did have uh, quite a
0: bit of success in doubles as well, yeah. That's where the good days. Everybody played singles and doubles. There's also this thing as a doubles specialist. You guys just all played doubles and you had incredible double success with Balaj to I believe, is that right?
1: Correct, yeah, it was complimentary. I mean, you would play your singles and you would try to make some extra money playing doubles. That's the way it was. And those days
0: it wasn't necessary because there wasn't as much prize money as there is today. We're gonna to get into a lot of different things about your career um, and, and also, you know, obviously we wanna talk about your time with Steffi.
1: Yeah, there was a interesting because he was like a second career. And the second best thing to being able to play on a big center court is having the chance to coach somebody to play on a big center court. You know, the feeling is not exactly the same, but the very first time I coached her, I actually tied my shoes before the match.
0: So I kind of got into the mood. Well, we're in the mood right now. Our shoes are all laced up. We do a five-set format. and Our first set is called the Off the Court Report. You work as a broadcaster for Swiss Television, correct?
1: I have been doing that for uh, 30 years, yes.
0: And we're recording this in November 2018. Roger Federer started 2018 out incredible. You know, what was your year like?
1: Well, obviously, we start uh, early on because we're basically following Roger Federer. Let's face it, we almost like Roger Federer TV. And he started... Uh, at the Hopman's Cup, which was you know, a great way to, to start a, a, the, uh, the year for us. Hotman Cup, that's played in Perth. That's played in Perth, but I did not broadcast that from Perth. You do it from we do, Zurich. Yeah, certain tournaments at times we do from Zurich, but most of them we actually do on-site. So it's also nice, I mean, I love Australia, but I also have a family, I have kids and everything, so uh, it's sometimes nice to be able to do certain things from Zurich. Uh, But that was the first event that uh, we did and obviously afterwards you have the Australian Open and you know it was a great success and that kind of set the tone for the year.
0: I mean Roger wins the Australian Open 37 years, old. It's incredible. Yeah that was amazing. I mean 2017
1: was maybe even more surprising after the, the injury timeout and I think he actually played better 2017 than 2018. But of course, uh, you know, every time he wins a big one, it's a great story because it's for the history books these
0: days. I mean, it's, it's amazing. Now, what time do you have to wake up to go do Australian TV from Zurich? That's
1: a good question. But they play reasonable hours in Perth because they uh, play late. So it's, uh, I don't know, it's morning, but I don't know what it is. But you're not in sure. the morning. It's not crazy. But I did cover the Australian Open a long, long time ago, uh, maybe 25 years ago, once from Zurich. And that's no fun at all. I mean that is that is crazy. If you especially if you do long hours, because you may be doing it from one o'clock in the morning to you know five in the morning, and then you have a break and you wait for some other matches and you just to sustain that for two weeks, that was that was crazy. Plus back home it was snowing and you're trying to relate to a place where it's you know, 35 degrees Celsius. So, you know, I did that once and said, no, no more.
0: I believe that the best broadcaster, when when the broadcast team's feet are on the street, when they are in the town, when they're broadcasting remotely, there's definitely a little bit of a disconnect, I think, personally.
1: Yes, there is. I mean, if you have been to the place many times, that helps a little bit, because you can kind of describe it, you know what's going on. But I think especially uh, early on in a year, you like to talk to people, things have changed, new coaches, uh, certain rumors, and on and on and on. And, and it is a lot easier, especially you, you know, in a place like Australia, which is it's very hot, it's uh, humid, and it's easier to describe it when you feel it. I, I remember that actually one year, the, the one year I did it, when Martina Hingis played for Capriotti in the finals, and he was you know, outrageously hot. Uh, back in Zurich, it was incredibly cold for that year, and they were actually redoing the studio, and the heating wasn't working properly, so I was sit- sitting there doing the broadcast in a ski jacket, and it was kind of difficult to relate. I mean, you're trying to tell the people, uh, it's very difficult for them to play because it's so hot, and m- most likely, it's not about who is the b- better player, but who can actually uh, uh, absorb the heat better off the two. And, and, and you're,
0: you're sitting, there, <laughs> yeah, sitting there with a the ski jacket. And, and you're, you're just... catching pneumonia. <laughs> <laughs> That's unbelievable. So it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit odd. Now, obviously, you follow the sun throughout the year. You go to every, basically, probably you're probably in Indian Wells, I'm mm-hmm. guessing, Miami.
1: Yeah, sometimes. It's certain years, yes, certain years not. It mm-hmm. depends a little bit. Those are the ones that uh, we, we obviously do, or I do. But uh, it temp- depends a little bit uh, if we know a long time ahead of time if Roger plays, if it's kind of doubt, you know, doubtful he will or not. You know, in these days, uh, everybody's cutting costs as well, you know, that's reached our industry i don't know if it's the same in yours <laughs> so.
0: i think that uh, i think the lean and mean style is uh duriger at the moment i think that uh i think that everybody is learning ways to you know adjust their budgets.
1: Yeah, so there's always this question, is it really necessary to be on site this year, here or there? Sure. You know, so you always have this discussion, especially like Indian Wells is also, when it comes to the broadcast, not really ideal, because it's too late.
0: It you know? doesn't work for its Swiss. No,
1: not very well. So the ratings are not going to be that good. So Indian Wells is already a little bit different. Yeah.
0: Um, I, th- I think the question that you know that our listeners I think would find the most interesting is is what, what's it been like to be on this Roger Federer moment? We um, have Wawrinka. You've had Rose. But I mean, this Roger moment has got to be next level.
1: Yes, um, but you know where it really started was with Martina Hingis. Right. Um, she was the first coming out of Switzerland to win a Grand Slam, and she basically opened the door. And I believe to this day that it helped uh, Roger along, knowing that yes, you know, a Swiss is able to win a big tournament like that. You know, and, and you
0: are, you, are you, is, is it a, are you a tight community uh, the tennis community? I mean, do you? Do you go for coffee with the Hingises and you see Roger on the street? Is that kind of a thing?
1: Martina, I know better than Roger because I'm also uh, the Fed Cup captain and she was part of the Fed Cup team. Of course. And last year, uh, actually this year, she uh, was like my co-coach, so to speak. So, you know, I spent quite a bit of time with her. Uh, Roger, you know, I've known for a long time ever since he's been in, in juniors. But it's not like I have a coffee next to the court or
0: so with him, no. I you don't. don't have that kind of no, relationship no, with him? I don't, no. Um, do, you, do you exchange pleasantries, or is it just an all- Oh, biz-
1: absolutely, when I see him. I know I've worked with him uh, for a long time. I do a lot of interviews, you know, on court, and uh, also for certain companies at time that he's sponsored by, you know, uh, so I do events and all kinds of things with him. So obviously, you know, we do a bit of chit-chat every so often waiting for the broadcast to start it. But that's about as far as it goes. Yeah.
0: Before we get back to Heinz, it's the moment all of you have been waiting for. Drum roll, please. The winner of the Salinko giveaway is Jason Tang. Jason, get used to winning because with a year of Salinko's Pro Player Package program, you do not have any more excuses. And for everyone else, keep listening. There are going to be way more giveaways on the horizon. Alright, moving into our second set, so what we call the On the Court Report. It's where we discuss what's happening on the court. You have a significant background in women's tennis, as far as coaching Steffi and Dokic, Capriati, and, and obviously Fed Cup captain. What trends are you seeing in women's tennis now? Well, you know, what's interesting is that
1: um, you get so many different winners. The old days, the criticism of women's tennis was, you know who's going to win. You know, you had like two or three different classes of, of players playing a Grand Slam. And that has changed dramatically. No one knows. There, there could be 40 different women that could win the Grand Slam. And, you know, if you name 40, you might not even be right. Yeah, you know I mean, it's
0: made the tournaments <laughs> very exciting.
1: Yes. Um, but then, of course, you do get this, this discussion. You, you need a certain recognition factor as well, because you want to, be able to recognize who is on the court and you either like him or you don't like him and that kind of enhances the experience because you want to be a fan, either because you're for someone or you're against someone. If you have two women out there that play terrific tennis but you know neither of them, it becomes a bit more difficult and the atmosphere in the stadium is not the same. So you don't have these rivalries like you used to have.
0: Well, it's nice for the connoisseur and it's tougher for the casual fan that doesn't have a a horse in the race, so to speak.
1: Yeah, like very often, you know, the solution is somewhere in between. You don't want to have the same final all the time, Serena playing Maria or whatever, but too much change is not that good either because, again, you want to be able to go there and feel like, well, first of all, I know the players and Uh, You want to have a feeling like you are able to predict it a little bit and then maybe you get disappointed. But if you go there and it's almost like a white sheet, you hardly know anyone, you have no idea what's going on, it kind of loses this aspect for the fan, I think.
0: That's interesting. Um, The men's men's tennis this year? Uh, You know,
1: every year we're asking ourselves, uh, is there going to be a young one that wins a big one? And it's been a long time since a really youngster won a big tournament. Um, There's so many theories... Going around why this is the case. Um, obviously, you know Roger, Rafa, and, and Novak. I think they're just um, so outstanding that you can't expect every generation to to produce a player like that. Maybe not even every three generations. What is fantastic for men's tennis is that they're playing at the same time, and the longevity of Roger has ensured that several generations play against each other. I just don't want to imagine what happens to men's tennis when suddenly Roger stops, Rafa is injured all the time, uh, Andy Murray's probably not gonna be as good as he was if he can ever you know, compete really again. Stan has been injured and some of these names are not competing anymore and they need a replacement. Who is that gonna be? Are you gonna have young players that will be able to play consistently that well for five, six, seven years, will really be able to take their place.
0: Well, I think, we, I mean, one thing we know is that it all keeps going, right? So, I mean, Kachanov and, and, and Zverev and Borna and, and, uh, Bornachorich, I mean, those guys, and Demenauer, those guys can play.
1: Correct, but you see, what I'm getting at, let's, let's say you take um, track and field. You have a few superstars, or you used to have a few superstars, then the sports does not produce, like a hundred meter uh, in the women or someone like that, you know, the, the Griffiths Joyner or, you know. Yes, somebody comes along and the sport still exists and they're, they're very, very good, but it does not have the same appeal. And you, you know, you cannot forget in tennis, there's a hell of a lot of money involved, you know? Now. Now, hell of a lot of money. so. It's, it's, it's not only sports, it's, it's the entertainment that counts as well because you can't justify this amount of money just by playing a bit of tennis. There's a hell of a lot more involved and a lot more to it. And so they have to, these, these, these people don't only have to appeal to tennis fans, they have to appeal to everyone, so to speak, you know, they have to be household names like Serena. If you say Serena, I don't have to say Williams because you know who, who she is, you know? It's not quite the same. Sweetelino just won. Uh, well, yeah, of course, the, you means. know the, the masses Singapore. How many people would sure. recognize that name? Sure. Saying, but... So I just hope when we're talking about tennis, we've had a period that has been unbelievable. It's like tennis had like three Tiger Woods, so to speak. Yeah. Right. It's difficult for, for golf too to, to replace Tiger. You saw what happened when he comes back. It's incredible.
0: Yeah. You know, so and, 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 and by the way, the women's golf is almost out of business because of a lack of mainstream superstar talent. The best players are, are, are non-English speaking players that they don't cut a big um, breadth, a, a big audience. Yeah, well, yeah. The, the,
1: again, if you're handing out that much money to people and you know their TV is involved in all kinds of things, if you want to have ratings, you have to attract a lot of people that usually don't watch tennis for the name recognition, not for the quality. I mean, let's be honest, and during this tournament, I mean, some of the matches have not been good.
0: Not been good Tragic, at all. But still, the
1: entertainment factor for a lot of people is quite high
0: because it was Roger out there playing Nishikori. That's a bucket list thing. You go see Roger Federer play tennis. Huh? Um, I know you are a, you're a coach and a world-class player, and I do have a, I have a question. What is your opinion of stroke production, of the way players are striking the ball, the style of tennis, what we're seeing on the court?
1: Well, what I think is fantastic is that Roger keeps on showing to everyone that you can play a different style and be successful. You know what I always have to smile at is when people say you have to play a certain style to win, but what they're actually saying is that everybody is playing a certain style. Of course then this style is winning because no one is playing a different way. This, it's usually true until somebody comes along and plays differently and you're successful. And then everybody goes, oh, this is still maybe a possibility that you actually serve in volley every so often. Or you, a slice is actually a shot you can use, yeah. A slice, it doesn't matter if you hit a topspin or you hit a slice. The question is, does, have, does the slice have a good quality or not? Does the slice stay low? Does he skid or not? And there, a few inches make all the difference.
0: Does it bite? You know? Is it accurate?
1: For example, when I started coaching Steffi, the first practice session she had, she was coming over that backhand. And at the time, I was playing against her, and I thought, geez, this is really nice. Medium height, medium spin, medium pace.
0: She was rolling the backhand. Oh, yeah,
1: beautiful for the hitting.
0: Steffi Graf, um, just to preface what's gonna come next, is famous for a slice backhand. Um, If you ever watch highlights of her, you probably see her You know, hit maybe five topspin backhands in her career.
1: Yeah, but what what happened there was that she had been told that, you know, she's playing an old style. To be able to win, you know, and have a longevity in your career, you have to be able to come over that backhand. I just had a completely different um, philosophy. It doesn't matter because the backhand is a supporting stroke for your forehand. Now, since the majority of girls have good double handed backhands and they love to hit it up the line, it's a lot easier to hit it up the line if it's shoulder height than if it's ankle height. And if your best shot is the forehand out of the backhand corner and you wanna make sure that they don't hit it up the line, hey, you're gonna get a lot more forehands hitting a slice. The question is how good
0: is that slice? And it starts with attitude. Explain that you're going to get a lot more forehands because, because, the, because the opponent is going to hit up on the ball, you'll be able to run around it Correct, and then just, tag it's it. It's a question
1: of angles. I mean, the, down the line, you have to hit over the short diagonal anyway of the court over the highest part of the net. So it's a slightly difficult, more difficult, if, especially if the ball is low. There's a lot less margin for error. Therefore, they're not going to hit it up the line as many times, or they're going to miss a hell of a lot more, which makes it much easier to run around your backhand. So the key is not if you come over or under. The question is, what's the quality? Because it's a supporting stroke. And so
0: she, you got her to knife that backhand, uh, yes, it's, and, it's, you know, and then and then moved then moved to the ad court and just rip the forehand.
1: Correct. So she, you know, we had been together for a while, and then she wins the big a big tournament. And a broadcaster comes to me and says, I have no idea what you have been trying to change because it seems like she plays the same. Like, what have you been doing? I said, well, I take this as a compliment, but I'm telling you, the back and slice stays lower by about three, four inches. And that makes all the difference. Of course, you would not see that if you're not playing. But if you're playing, I mean, if you're playing against her, you would definitely feel that.
0: Yeah, I remember being in Munich with Andre and Todd Woodbridge and they were talking about Todd's slice because Todd had a great slice. And I think Todd was the one who said, yeah, I, I think the only one who's as better is my partner, was Mark mm-hmm. and Steffi. Yeah. They said that, I mean, Steffi Steffi Grass slice backhand, one of the best there ever was.
1: You know, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, there's so much talk of how exactly should you play, I think the basis is, do you hit that stroke well or you don't? And you have to know which stroke you actually want to hit. And then you have certain amount of strokes which basically support that, so you get as many as possible that you actually like, and that is your style of play. And it can be really old fashioned, so to speak, or it can be you play from the baseline, you can play at the net, whatever. But it has to be something that you know fits you physically, uh, and it's also, you know, if you have, more patience, your athleticism and so on and so forth. So it has to fit to this particular person. And if too many coaches try to force a certain style on it because everyone else playing that way, a lot of people will never be successful because they play the same way as someone else but not quite as well.
0: Moving into our third set, this is where we typically talk about our guest's career. Um, where does your tennis story begin?
1: I had a brother and my parents played on weekends and the tennis club was uh, 100 yards away. And so... And, we, and, and where, where is that? And that's in Zurich. You're you know, from Zurich, I'm Switzerland? I'm from Zurich, yes, yeah. You speak German. Swiss German. Swiss German. Swiss German. Well, but I can also speak German, obviously.
0: Uh, what else do you speak? English, Swedish, French. Swedish, Italian. French, yeah. Italian. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible. Um, so you so you were you grew up down the street from a club, correct? Yes, and uh, my father liked sports. He was
1: you know a skier mainly, uh, so you know we did sports all day. And those are the days before the iPhone,
0: you know. Yeah, for sure. So
1: every second we tried to entertain ourselves. So we would do a different sport. Maybe football. Maybe skiing. Maybe rollerblading. Maybe like ice hockey. We played. Everything you can possibly imagine,
0: and you and you played indoors all through six months. Did you? Did you end up in Spain? Like, were you like? A no, wor- no, no, no. We we had a bubble actually, uh, yeah. and
1: the good thing about it was there weren't many indoor courts. Um, so very early on, I was a very good junior. A really good junior.
0: So you were world-class playing internationally as a junior?
1: Yeah, I I won Wimbledon Juniors. I won the French, uh, you know. uh, Highly touted junior. Yeah, I was probably number one in the world at the time. And also already 12, 13, 14, I basically would win pretty much everything. Uh, The reason was I had played a lot of tennis with my brother. It wasn't, you know, the coaching. Definitely not. It was just playing and playing a lot against adults that were physically... Uh, superior, and I had to find a way to beat them. So you learn the game, you find a way to win,
0: you know. When um, d- d- did you get pulled out of school, like Sampras and Agassiz? Do you have a high school I don't know, degree?
1: Uh, oh, no, no, it's the third. Yes, I do, and everything. It's a completely different. It was a completely different time. There wasn't a single professional athlete in Switzerland,
0: so. Yes, we, there wasn't a single
1: professional athlete in Switzerland. Correct. There was not a soccer player. No, for... there wasn't professional at the time. Not in Switzerland. Amazing. You know, it's a long time ago. I'm, you know, I'm fifty-nine years old. I'm going to be sixty soon. So that, there was so not
0: there was, a professional athlete. There
1: was there was no profession. Therefore, you wouldn't be able to go to, you know I couldn't go to my teacher and say, I want to play professional tennis, therefore I uh, need more time and less schooling. I mean, they
0: would look to me like, right. what are you trying to do? <laughs> right, that, that, that wasn't a thing.
1: That was not a thing, you know. So, but what was, uh, in, in hindsight, was important, was there were, there were, at the time, maybe three or four tennis courts in Zurich during the winter, not more. And since I was very good, I was able to practice with the older ones. The Federation book, I played way up. You played way, way up. up. And they had to play with me because there weren't any other courts anyway. So it was like forced.
0: They were so, forced. So
1: out of, out of basically not having infrastructure became something really good
0: for me. 12 year old playing 19 year old. <laughs> Correct. Because there exactly was nowhere else happened. to go.
1: Correct, that's exactly what happened.
0: So you turned pro. Um, how old were you? Probably 17, 18 years
1: old? Well, you know, in Europe, the, there was no amateur status at the time. It still does not exist. So, I played tournaments in 16, 17, where I made money already. You so started to make
0: money? Yeah. Walking around with 15 Dunlop rackets? You're not 15,
1: but yes, Dunlop rackets. Nice wood rackets, correct. Yes. I'm
0: saying you used to walk around with a million rackets and you put your change in the little, the little cover. Used to walk like the you uh, guys yeah, had that was, style? Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah, each each racket was individual, and I would actually string a lot of rackets myself by hand, just with with a grip.
0: I mean, incredible.
1: Yeah, it's just completely, I mean, it's it's funny talking about these things because I never do because I mean, the youngsters don't want to hear that stuff, right? <laughs> well, I don't
0: know. I mean, I think we we think you know the the, the 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 theme of our show is is to talk to the people that we think are interesting. So. Yeah, but you know what I'm
1: saying. Yeah, it's like, they, they don't know, even. They can't, they, a... they can't relate to that. So why you didn't do that? It's the same. You know, we were talking in the first segment about um, you know the, why maybe not as many youngsters coming up. You know. In a sense, we were practicing eight, nine hours a day, not playing tennis. But when we were not playing tennis, we were doing another sport. So I didn't have any physical education, but I could do all kinds of things. Sure. Because you know we we're climbing on trees. So
0: you're playing sports yeah. all day. Skiing, all day. <laughs> Tennis. Yeah, everything. But even said
1: climbing on trees. We, you know, yeah. I was building uh, houses in the trees and, you know, Tree houses. You know, all the kind of stuff. All the kind of sure. stuff. So, so yeah, you get physically strong, you get flexible, there's all kinds of things. That's what we were doing all the time. Yeah. So maybe that is a little bit something that's missing, missing these days for a lot of youngsters because yeah. everything is so organized. But then they play tennis, and then they actually have to go and do some physical fitness because besides that, all they do is look at the computer.
0: Um, yeah. You, you. I mean, you probably played, you know, thirty-five weeks a year. 40 weeks a year, I mean? More than that. M- yeah. More. Um, you know, maybe two weeks off a year or something. Really? Yeah, yeah. Really? For, for 10 years? Um,
1: yeah. The, the, my problem was that um, when I was 18 years old, uh, I, I started to feel pain in my hips. So uh, they did an x-ray, and unfortunately, uh, both hips were not the way they were supposed to be. So I was actually told when I was 18 years old, sorry, you can't play tennis. So that was one of the reasons why I stopped when 27, 28 years old, because the pain was just too...
0: You had significant pain throughout oh, your career. Every single match. Yeah. Amazing.
1: Yeah, I had a, a really good year, once. I'm not sure, it was 80 or 81, I won three tournaments and uh, one Master Series one. Um, but the problem was, because of my hip problems, I couldn't play a match without uh, anti-inflammatories. That was absolutely impossible. And every so often, if you take a lot, you have to take a break. The problem was when I did take a break and would play a tournament. There's no way. Then you'd lose. Yeah, I lose. So I had one year where I either made the quarterfinals or I lost first round. And the ranking was different in those days. That the first rounds would give you a one pointer, and it was all on average. So that system was not ideal for me in those days. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know if 85 was my best year, but. Uh, yeah, they did make the quarters in Wimbledon. I made the quarters in uh, U.S. Open.
0: Yeah, I mean, final eight. I mean, the final eight club is that's high prestige. Period. <laughs> right, you walk, it you have it says it right on your credential. Says final eight club. Heinz yeah, I, I got three. Guitar. I got
1: three out of the four. I got, you know, I won a doubles the French as well, which um, makes
0: you eligible for that club as well. Oh, nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Of course, you, you know it's interesting. What do you get? That, do you get anything? They give you like tickets or anything?
1: Yes, you get two tickets. Um, well, every place is a little bit different. Yeah. The French is actually the most generous because they, um, they give you an allowance for the hotel and they give you 60 euros a day for food as well at the different restaurants.
0: Wow, if you're huh? a final eight club, you get <laughs> you get a per diem for life from the French tennis <laughs> player. That's Which incredible. Is, it's,
1: no, it's, it's, it's very much, it's not the money. It's just, it's, it's a gesture, cool thing. It's, yeah. it's a gesture. You go there and you show your badge. That's cool. You, know, you get your fruit salad. Every once free. in a
0: while, I, have a, <laughs> I like to look at the different credentials and I, you see that final eight club and you never heard of the player, you're like, wow, man. I mean, uh-huh. you got to the quarters, that's cool. Um, y- you know, you had huge success uh, in doubles. Um, you know, you're a Grand Slam champion, you won a, a, a mix with Martina. Are, are those significant moments for you? Doubles titles are. Are no, they, are no, they no, as big? They
1: are. No, they are. You see, the thing is, uh, as a kid playing against my brother, we were playing Wimbledon, literally. You know, I used to be John Newcomb and he was Ken Rosewell. The reason for that was that. Those days, Swiss television was showing Wimbledon and nothing else, literally. And the first Wimbledon final I saw was 1967, John Newcomb playing Wilhelm Bungert. It was not a good match, but the loved uh, Newcomb's surf, his style, you know, the way he was starting before he actually started the movement. So I was a complete fan. So we were playing Wimbledon over and over and then actually playing Wimbledon was a big step,
0: was huge Incredible. because of that.
1: And, you know, the happiest I had ever been on a tennis court was winning Junior Wimbledon.
0: That's no. funny, you know, Nicholas Pereira, uh, who's been on our show, uh, echoed that same sentiment. Yeah. I, it never,
1: I never had the same rush playing adults like there. And I remember everything in slow motion sitting there before I served for the match. And I was thinking, I'm about to surf for the match. And I was so nervous, I hardly felt my arms and whatever. Luckily... I mean, now it's a daze. So I wouldn't be able to replay any point because it was just such a daze. So I, I m- must assume my opponent helped me probably by missing three or four returns or something like that. I have no idea. I, I just remember the, sitting there at the changeover and having won it, and I just remember being there. My, you know, arm, my rambling. arms, my arms in the air. And it actually, it wasn't like a deliberate gesture. Oh, like a one. It was, it was. I was just there and I looked at myself almost like in 3D. Oh, I just won Wimble. It was just an you know, extraordinary thing.
0: Extraordinary. That's amazing, that almost gives me the chills. Now, um, we could talk for hours but we don't have that time. Um, your career finished, what happens to you next?
1: Well, uh, I said I finished really, really early because what happened was that I was actually still top 30 but I didn't want to go out there anymore. You
0: couldn't play. It hurt too much. It
1: just hurt too much. What I, what I, you know, I got married and I had a kid. And somehow I felt like what I'm doing to me is just, you know, this is not sustainable. It's, it wasn't that it was hurting more than before. It just I was playing against myself. I'm I going to do this step because I know this is going to hurt, right? And I went out there and I played a couple matches where I just didn't want to do it. And he said, this, I shouldn't be out here at this point. You right? stopped. Yeah, I just said, okay, I stopped. I played a few doubles here and there, but you know, I, said, I just said, I, I can't do this. So I was very young, so I felt, okay, I'm young enough to do something else. So I actually went into journalism. You know, I started to write for a newspaper. I covered golf for a while. I did all kinds of funny stuff. Oh, cool. Uh, yeah, you know, some of it was cool and some of it wasn't. You know, sure, like, sure. You know, like a, a new writer, they uh, cover, uh, I don't know what, uh, sun lotion products for our paper. Uh, you know, it was... Right, <laughs> some, <right. laughs> some of it wasn't exactly terrific research or, or great writing. But you're not
0: just some... You've, you've done some different things in your life. You I've had done a more, lot of different things yeah. in my life, actually.
1: You know, yeah. I did, you know, I worked in journalism. I obviously did some coaching. I actually uh, worked in a bank as well. I was uh, oh, a right. um, director at UBS, private banking. Um, Swiss yeah. banker,
0: Swiss banker. Yeah.
1: So uh, you know, I, I, that, the reason for that was that I wanted to find out how it is to work from nine to five, and having never done that. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't a great thing for no, me. No, that's hard. No, it's it was, different. It was, it was
0: weird. It's Plus, good to taste that humble pie sometimes. Yeah, it's good. Though. Plus,
1: you know, in the, when you're a tennis player, you're pretty much your own boss. Uh, being part of this big organization,
0: uh, it was
1: very, very restricting.
0: That's different. Um, we have to talk about it. Uh, how did Steffi Graf and how did you get together with Steffi? What were the circumstances that created that relationship?
1: I, um, after my career, I worked in journalism, but at the same time, I uh, coached a Bundesliga team, which is the first division team in Germany, Rot-Weiss Berlin.
0: In, in, in Germany, there is a very well-funded professional tennis league with players, some some that end up on the tour and others that... You may never hear of, but they're, they're paid, they've got, they get apartments, they get cars, it's a real thing.
1: It is, yeah. And uh, you actually have, usually playing in one or two, somebody that's in the top 100 for sure, even top 50, you know. So the at the time, I don't know what is nowadays, but there was quite a lot of money involved. Anyway, she had a good relationship with the director of the club because at the same venue that played the women's tournament, which was one of the largest tournaments at the time in the Rot-Weiss Berlin, at the tennis club in you know, a big stadium and, and the whole hoopla. And when she was looking for a new coach, um, some of it the, the father was doing, the father was doing most of the management at the time.
0: Peter he, Graf. Correct. And, he, and, and they fell out, and then you came on? Is that? No no no. No no, 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 no,
1: no, 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 no. The first phone call was made by the director of tennis club if I would Interested to uh, coach her, uh, and I said, "Yeah, of course." I mean, you know, it depends. I had another job; I was working as a journalist. What are we talking oh, about? I mean, she so, must
0: have been one in the world. I mean, obviously, um,
1: I don't know if it was one or two. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Obviously, right. yeah, a huge name in tennis. Anyway, so um, then the, Peter called me, and I realized what he was looking for is, you know, is three things. First of all, you had to be able to play well.
0: All right, you if, you be you able had, to hit with her.
1: Correct, and it's worker supposed to be uh, worker work out really good. So you had supposed to be, out, be able to out, stay out there four or five hours, right which I was still really fit at the time. That was actually no problem. Um, you still
0: look like you could do
1: five hours. No, I can't. No, <laughs> anyway, you look like you could. <laughs> but anyway, so um, obviously I could still hit the ball really well. World was class. Yeah, there was absolutely no problem there. So that was the first criteria. The second one was uh, you had to be able to speak German because Papa didn't like to speak English, and German, I could speak. Two. My mother tongue. No Two, problem. check it off. Check and, it off the box. Yeah, and the third criteria was you had to be married, because he was afraid there could be a relationship with his young daughter. And he doesn't want and that. And I could do one better. Not only was I married, I even had a kid. So that's,
0: checked all three boxes. And you, and you. Um, was she the super quiet, shy person that we sort of, I don't know, maybe remember, or was did you was she a lot cooler and more uh, loquacious um, privately with her group with you?
1: Yes, uh, obviously uh, her. And she's she's not a very outgoing person. Quiet on the court, off the court. No, she's she's not. But um, interesting when we started out. Um, I was replacing Pavel Slozil and I wasn't, in, in the beginning when I was asked to act to help her out, I thought it was maybe for the Australian Open, it was more like not a permanent thing. Did she have a fallout with Slozil or they? Well, I didn't really say. know. The problem was uh, Slozil was, uh, Pavel was a good friend of mine. We had played doubles together. So it became kind of awkward because I thought that they had talked about it, which they didn't, which I did only realized when I arrived at the place and she almost was hiding me. And I thought, okay, this is a bit odd here, what's going on, but who knows? You know, I you don't want to, you know, elaborate on what happened between sure. the two. But, you know, on tennis circuit, there's so much stress involved and sometimes things just don't work out and you want to change. But anyway, so um, it was interesting. So, you know, I thought it was going to do like 20 weeks maximum, maybe, you know, for a reasonably short time. And then uh, the first year I did like 33 weeks or something like that. But for like two or three years, I never had a contract or anything. It wasn't really on a permanent base, but it became permanent anyway. Uh, So we developed this kind of relationship
0: of trust. Man, you were with her seven years. How many slams? Uh, (laughs) Twelve. That's pretty nice, yes. That was very nice. I mean, between... I I mean, that's got to be the greatest coaching job there's ever was i mean 12 slams in seven years is it's incredible that is good and uh i mean how many matches could she have lost in seven years like like 15 matches
1: well no no she she lost a lot more than that but she was injured a lot towards the end of her career too so in that is also almost a year where she couldn't even play is that right you know she missed quite a few slams and things like that so um yes i mean you know i I really really enjoyed because it was it was very challenging you know she's um, it wasn't always easy in a sense that she wasn't just showing up in in the morning and being very happy and, you know, chatty and things like that. At times, you know, she was going through some rough patches because, uh, you know, with Peter Graf, I mean, it's well known. He went to prison and there's all kinds of, you know, a lot of things were going on during and, those and, days as well. And, so, and, and, then, and it's,
0: also to, it's also, you know, you can't forget, you know, this is one of the most famous people there is in Germany. I mean, the pressure, that, the pressure that she had from German press, we don't see it in America. We just see a player going, taking the court. I mean, she is just one of the most famous people there was in, in those 90s.
1: Absolutely. Well, it's worldwide. I just want to add, I mean, Papa Graf went to prison for tax evasion. You know, that, that's yeah. what he was. But, you know, she, she privately went through some really rough patches. Um,
0: and you were right there front and center for
1: her. The interesting part was that people were very surprised that she was able to perform the way she was able to perform during those days because those were difficult days. But what happened is that when she was playing, she wasn't thinking about these things. So she actually wanted to practice more because that helped
0: her get her mind
1: off of all the problems she had.
0: The tennis was a respite from the rest of life's uh, problems. Exactly, because she really liked to
1: hit the tennis ball. But that does not mean that she showed up happy in the morning, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So it was, it was an interesting time. And I learned a lot just being there and also you know, from her, also about me.
0: You know, Brad Gilbert said that about Andre that he learned so much from him. Um, Maybe you could talk a little about what you learned from being around such a great champion.
1: Well, um, what I was most impressed by is how much she actually loved to play. I think that was the basis why she was able to play that well. You know, the joy of actually hitting tennis balls, you know? because you get the feeling that a lot of people are out there because they have to be out there. She wanted to be out there.
0: She loved it.
1: She loved it. Loved she loved it. to hit the tennis ball and she loved to compete. So she was doing what she really loved, you know? And that's, that's the basis. So, you know, sometimes certain things didn't work out, but the second she was on the tennis court, she was where she wanted to be, you know? And obviously, being around dad, I asked questions myself, how often was I, playing with that attitude, I know I am there where I wanna be. Even if I lose, I still wanted to be there, you know? So that was, I think that was the foundation for her success, that she actually loved
0: what she was doing. You know, I had the uh, privilege of doing a documentary for the Tennis Channel uh, about Andre. And part of the story was, you know, him getting together with Steffi. And Brad said that you two were thick as thieves, complicit, when Andre was trying to get Steffi's attention at, uh, the, at, the, at the Lipton, at the Key Biscayne tournament. Correct, yeah. That's true. That is true, yes. That is true. Did really, did, did, did Brad approach you, uh, is, there a, is there Yeah, a...
1: well, I, I didn't know that uh, Andre liked her because uh, you know, he had tried through different channels to somehow arrange, um, not a date, but something similar. He's trying to reach out. Yeah, so to speak. Um, but at the time she had a boyfriend, but I just felt that relationship wasn't good for either one of them. Both, both of them are very nice people and, you know, and so on and so forth. So uh, you know, I felt it wasn't up to me to, to pick someone But it's almost like there are a lot of other people out there. Maybe you like some weather. Maybe somebody is a better match for you. All you need to do is see for yourself. Why not him? So it wasn't like I think, oh, Andre would be the perfect match. Could have been anyone. Just go out there and it's up to you, you know. But the way she was, I don't think... she would not have taken the initiative to talk to Andre at the time. I don't think that would so have So you happened.
0: had to let them know the practice time.
1: Yeah, correct. Basically what happened is that I just told Brad, book that time, I'm gonna book the time afterwards, and I'm gonna take a hell of a lot of time to put my shoes on, so to speak. During that time, these two can chat. You know, That's the first contact, so.
0: How many days do you think that happened, that you guys worked that out? It was about three days, maybe? Five so, days, the, the practice were you, were you
1: overlapping these practices? No, 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 no. You, that's not what's happening. What, what then Andre did, he sent her flowers. And I don't know, I didn't count them, but a hundred roses or something, which was not a good idea because she was there with her boyfriend. A little unsmooth. Yeah, a little unsmooth, especially since the boyfriend was in the room when they brought the flowers. So, so that was, that only practiced once because obviously you're like, wow, okay. Uh, that wasn't the idea here.
0: Yeah. Heinz Gunhart, uh one of the key collaborators in uh, one of the great tennis uh, relationships, I think, right? Yeah, they're still together. Hopefully very happy. Do you ever speak with uh, Steffi? Do, do you ever...? Sometimes, you know, a few times a year, yeah. You do? Yes, I do. And life's good, everyone's good? Yeah, seems that way. Uh, moving into our fourth set, we call this the 10-ball scramble. I'm just going to say a name or a thing, and you'll just tell us what you think. We don't okay. do a deep dive. Okay. Uh, your best
1: win. Chen uh, Mayer at the U.S. Open. Round? Three. Worst loss? Mm, Stockholm Open uh, Mats Why? Two match points, and it was playing a lot better, and I just joked. Big time.
0: Oh, man. Um, favorite city? Paris. Favorite court? Probably center court at the French Open. Chatrier, center court, French yeah. Open. You love that court. Yeah, I love that court. I love. Uh, what about what about Monte Carlo? Yeah, I mean it's
1: very nice. It's just it's just that center court. It's it's the quality of the court as well. It's the, I I like to play on clay, not because I played the best on clay, but I, it's just it's a nice game. You know, it's more strategic somehow, and that court is second to none. Center court,
0: French Open.
1: Um, favorite tournament. Uh, f- Maybe Wimbledon, Labor Cup. I don't know what where to put this, and I don't have no idea how long it will go on. It's not the Ryder Cup yet. Davis Cup. I wish it would be more important these days. Player scheduling. I think there should be an off season, but unfortunately, whenever there's an off season, to find exhibitions to fill those weeks with, so it doesn't really work. The shot clock. There should be a firm shot clock, and I would put it at 30 seconds, because then you can actually ensure that you can use a shot clock. On-court coaching. It's happening anyway, so why not make why not me make it legal?
0: On-court coaching.
1: Uh-huh, On-court coaching.
0: Oh. I'm really divided on that one. He's shaking his head, everyone, like he <laughs> hates it, but... He's not going to say that, I don't think. Do you hate it? Do you prefer it to be an individual sport where the no, one can, no one can be talked to? Uh, no be yeah, but the
1: thing, what I, what I dislike is that you have a rule and nobody adheres to the rule. You know, what happened at the US Open happens at every single match. There is coaching literally 99% of the matches going on in one way
0: or another. So it's there anyway. Moving into our fifth and final set, we call this the king of the court. If you were the king of tennis, how would you do it? Um, I don't have a terribly specific question for you, but as just such a person who lives such a robust life in tennis in so many different aspects, um, what is your opinion now of player development and what would you change? in, in the development of world class players? I wish there would be less
1: analysis which leads to uh, having more of a feel based game because I think people play better when they actually play a bit more on feel. Uh, so I, I do understand why uh, you know these days it's easy to crunch data and things like that but every day they look at is backwards looking and to play well you have to play instinctively and to combine the two is very, very difficult. And since it's a game, and it will stay a game forever, and a game you can't put in a frame, which many people do, which I think it's, it's almost silly, because that's why it's so attractive, because you cannot do that, nobody knows what happens next. I think that when you develop a player, they should understand this is a game. And a piece of paper will not make you necessarily hit the ball better. If you want to hit the ball well, you got to feel it. Right? If you wanna dance well, you gotta feel
0: the beat. Yo, if you wanna dance well, you've gotta feel it. That is a fact. Um, Heinz gunhart thank you so much for uh, talking with us today. Um, we really enjoyed it. It was an absolute pleasure, thank you very much. Uh, my man, you are released. Thank you. Huge thank you to Heinz gunhart Big thank you to the folks at the ATP. Thank you to Solinko for making Jason Tang even more of a winner than he already is. And thank you for listening and spreading the word. And let us know what you think. Our email is info at underreviewtennis.com. At UR with CS is our Twitter handle. Underreviewtennis is our Instagram and Facebook. Our producer is Scott Tuft. And our music is by Brian Senti. Jason Binnick did our mix. We'll really be back next time with the great four-time Grand Slam winner Jim Currier. To make sure you don't miss it, click on subscribe. And while you're there, rate and review us. We can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, and everywhere else you get your podcasts. Until then, I'm Craig Shapiro, and you are released.